Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. Welcome to Belonging, a podcast that explores how to come home to yourself in the age of loneliness. I'm Becca Piastrelli, your host and guide on a journey of courageous reconnection. As we explore topics like ancestral wisdom, cultivating meaningful sisterhood, living with the seasons and cycles of the earth in your body, and what it means to be a good ancestor. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. I'm Becca Piastrelli. I'm so excited about today's episode. Oh, it's another interview. I'm really feeling good in this interaction with other people. So I have to bring you someone who I have admired from afar. First, it started with an Instagram follow, and then I took one of her courses and I bought her book and really just feel such a deep connection and um, feel deeply honored for the work she puts out in the world. And that is Lara Vesta. So Lara Valeda Vesta is an artist, storyteller, and educator transforming chronic illness into a path of healing and reclaiming. She is the author of the Moon Divas Oracle, illustrator of the Moon Divas Oracle Cards and the Runes Revealed, and is currently working on an illuminated manuscript exploring death transitions. She also offers classes by donation at the Wild Soul School, which is where I took her course, um, the Ancestral Connection course that I highly recommend. And she explores folk magic, ancestral connections, self-initiation, and ritual practice. She is so powerful. She's been doing this work for over 20 years. I consider her an elder in that way and a sister in so many other ways. Um, This is such a powerful conversation where we really left linear time and wove our way with ease, actually, through a deep and powerful conversation about her uh, completing a nine-year journey with chronic illness her experience, her depth of experience from her studies and her PhD program in understanding um, myth and folklore 
of her people of old Europe. She is particularly drawn to her lineage of um, the Nordic, the Northern European cultures. She shares some really powerful, like goosebump worthy um, stories of old um, Northern European goddesses and the medicine, the stories that they have that can be integrated into our own lives today. She talks about the three phases of a rite of passage and how that applies to her illness and how we can apply it to other ways of being in our lives. We both talk about some pretty tender topics, including our different versions of pregnancy loss and how the grief has taken us on this journey of deeper connection with our own ancestors in a really powerful and beautiful way. We also talk about her changing her name and uh, it's quite a story and feels like something I'm still (laughs) sitting with and feeling in my heart, uh, something I think will be really powerful. She educates us on runes and she talks about alternatives to completing ritual. If you are in ritual, whether you're online or in community gatherings and you're not sure how to complete it and you're worried about saying something that might be appropriating another culture or feeling like you're faking it or you don't have the handbook. We talk about how she came to her expression and we actually close in ritual together. It's really powerful. I am like buzzing from this conversation. It We both completed it feeling so fed by the other one. And I just really am happy, happy to share this woman and her work with you today. So Without further ado, here's my conversation with Laura Vesta. Thank you so much for being here with me this morning. I have just been such, um, I don't know why the word devotee comes up because that sort of like guruifies you and like, I'm not super down with that, but I just feel a little bit like um, excited and nervous and just like honored to be here with you today. Um, Laura Vesta, thank mm. you for being here. Thank and I, I pulled um, your bio from your website and I love how you describe yourself as a storyteller, myth weaver, mother, artist, and educator living at the confluence of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers mm-hmm. in Portland, right? Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon? In Portland, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here with me. And um, we don't really know what we're going to talk about. And yet we know it will be in service to this greater conversation about belonging and connection and ancestry and all of it. So thank you for being a yes to the unknown. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for having me. And I just got all kinds of goosebumps when you said belonging, connection and ancestry. Yes, right. I mean, yes. I could just talk about that all day. Yes, <laughs> so, like that's what really matters. Not so much all this like stuff and like capitalism and patriarchy that keeps us with our heads down and our health low and energy poor and all of that. You know. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Okay. So I there's this question I like to ask in my circles and in gatherings, which is, who are your people? Mm. And I think I want to, I think I want to also say, what do you come from? Mm. So answer that. However, feels true. Oh gosh. 
Those are big. Those are big. So in the immediate present moment, those are difficult questions to answer um, because I, I come from many things in many places, but I'm also figuring out in this moment who I am um, because I've just recovered from such a serious illness. And um, in that illness, I had a lot of neuroinflammation for many years, and it actually caused my brain to atrophy and connections to be pruned in my brain by um, elevated C4A levels. So as I my brain plumps up again, I like using the word plump and brain <laughs> in the same sentence, um, and as the connections are starting to reform, I'm having to answer those questions differently, but some things are consistent, and that is... Um, I'm from people of the earth. I'm from people of the land. My people are largely immigrants from Europe, from Northern Europe, from um, Ireland and England and Norway and Sweden, and then also from Eastern Europe, from Czechoslovakia, and fairly recent immigrants, all of them, to the United States. Um, in the immediate time, my my parents were hippies and they moved to Southern Oregon to homestead when I was four. So I grew up without running water or electricity um, for a time on 24 acres in uh, <laughs> outside of Weimar, Oregon, which my dad used to have a hat that said, where the hell is Weimar, Oregon? Because nobody knew <laughs> where it was. So, um, but in, in a more immediate sense, you know, my people are people doing this work that you're doing in the relational sense, people who are doing the work of, of reclaiming and healing in this life right now and reconnecting all of those severed threads that, um, that were stolen and bound and removed and taken from us. Mm -hmm. um, so what was the other question? I'm not going to tell you because okay. like, this is the answer. <laughs> no, you oh, answered good. it. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Um, I would love to dive into what you shared in the beginning, which is about this illness that has been initiating you into deeper levels of awareness and consciousness. Um, because that's actually why I reached out to you. I think I could talk to you about a hundred things, but something I really appreciated about you or your sharing of your story is how you've fallen ill and what that has been like, how that you've experienced that and what it's shared with you mm. and where it's taken you, where you've journeyed. And so I love how you talk about rites of passage and initiation um, that really feels so um, it just resonates with my cells mm -hmm. in this way of looking at what it is to be a human and the different phases we walk through and the way in modern culture we can resist um, or fight certain, certain things that happen to us um, and then embrace others. And I'm, I'm actually about to go into uh, my level one and level two death doula training this mm -hmm. weekend 
yeah, I'm so nervous. <laughs> be powerful. Yes. Because I personally feel, uh, I want to feel as much ecstasy and reverence for death as we do birth mm-hmm. in this culture. And I actually have you to thank for that. And I think it was your ancestral connection course that I took where you asked us to think about the way our ancestors looked at these rites of passages. And I started I started looking into the Celtic um, death rites and all of that, many of which were lost, but that just got me curious. So circling back to my question, which is um, how has um, illness, and if you want to share more about what you've, going, what you've been going through, I think it'd be helpful to people who are maybe feeling like they can't share what they're going through. What has that opened up for you? Oh, well, this has been a long journey. So um, nine years of illness. And in my ancestral tradition and the Northern European tradition, nine is a very sacred number. So it feels really salient that it was nine, nine years, um, nine years ago. And this is part of the story that I haven't shared before, but it feels really important. And I've been asked to share it. Um, so nine years ago, I had an abortion and, um, after the abortion, so the story, the story of illness begins with a death after the abortion, which was made in a moment of desperation. I was a single mother. I'd been in a relationship only for a couple months at that point in time. And I had just started my first full-time job in eight years Um, I didn't feel like I could have another child. I felt completely unsupported by my family, my community, my culture. Academia is not friendly to parents anyway. I was one of only two single mothers teaching um, at my university. They didn't offer any childcare at all to faculty or students. And I, it was a very quick decision and it was an important one. But after that, I knew I didn't want any more children. And I had my children also were very young at the time. They were um, three and five. So um, I had an IUD inserted. And I bled nonstop for about nine months, just constantly. Um, Every time I would exert myself, I would bleed heavily. And I became anemic. And what kept being told, oh, it will settle down, it will settle down. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) If you know your body and you've never had these kinds of experiences before, probably something's wrong. And I was told that nothing was wrong. And this would be a theme, by the way. And I think it's a theme for a lot of people, but specifically for a lot of women um, to be minimized in the medical community. Um, After the IUD was removed, I just never came back from that. And for two years, I was exhausted all the time. I caught every virus that came through my family. Um, I hobbled along and uh, eventually found out that I had a uterine infection for two years (laughs) that went undiagnosed. And part of that is because my immune system prior to that experience was incredibly hardy. I was one of those like never sick, like super strong, you know, all of my family lives really long, healthy lives. I have great genes and 
had a very healthy childhood and took care of myself. And, um, and then afterward, I, I had never recovered my energy and, and I got progressively worse. And until, um, in 2014, I started, um, finding that I couldn't, I couldn't teach without a recovery day after teaching. I had to have a day of downtime and then that got worse where suddenly I needed two days of downtime and then I would need a week of downtime. Um, meanwhile, I decided to embark on a PhD program, of course, and um, in women's spirituality, because that's my love, um, philosophy and religion and ancient cultures. And I took, um, I took a full-time teaching job um, and, and crashed out after about three months and, and did not get out of bed with few exceptions for two years. So that was 2016. Um, come to find out we had toxic mold in our house. So that was a factor. Come to find out after finally getting to see a specialist after I was diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, I saw a specialist at Stanford and they tested me for viruses and inflammatory markers that are not tested by most conventional doctors. And my inflammatory markers were three times what they should be. And I had five viruses living in my body, including Epstein-Barr, um, HHV-6, um, and other really nasty ones too. So um, when those were treated and I was able to get out of a moldy house, um, I recovered very quickly and, and said just almost as suddenly as the journey had begun, it was over in a matter of months. So, um, now I'm trying to integrate this whole experience because there's a lot of loss and a lot of grief in that. And that's why I do see illness as a death transition. I do see it as a rite of passage, as an initiation, um, specifically chronic illness or any kind of disabling, disabling anything. When you take, um, when you take yourself out of kind of normative culture, when you become other, you are entering into the liminal and that is a rite of passage. And there was a lot lost in those nine years that, you know, I don't get back. But there was definitely a lot gained. And one of the biggest things was connection with my ancestors, um, acknowledgement that they live inside of me. And so this embodied awareness of chronic illness brought me so much closer to them and to, you know, the path of um, earthwork and um, an intuitive knowing and being able to really find the gift in the wound, which is empowering. So, mm. so that's the story. It's such a long story, and there's so many more pieces to it, but that is the surface of it, the sphere. Mm. Thank you for sharing it. I really want to honor um, that you've, where you began it, which was with the abortion. Um, 
And really honoring how tender and taboo that still feels and culture and unsafe and really letting you know that I hold that as um, an empowered decision and um, all that it feels. And, you know, that is a loss in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting for me listening to is I realize in the last two years since um, the diagnosis or when the mold, I, I think I came into your space. I'm, I don't even know how I came into your space. It just happened, right? <laughs> All of a sudden I was aware of you was when, was when I think it was at its worst. Mm-hmm. The fatigue was really rough and you were needing weeks to recover. And um, so that's how I knew you. Mm-hmm. That's how I knew you. And so it's really nice to know the full span and to know that you're feeling like you're nearing completion. Well, yes, some things are done. I mean, I'm definitely in, you know, the the third phase of a rite of passage process, which is return. That's when, you know, you, um, you come back to your community with, Mm. but you're changed. You're totally different. And that's how I feel. And, um, so the, the transition itself is complete, but the rite of passage is not yet complete because I'm still in the phase of return. I have a lot of trauma to process and a lot of integration to do and a lot of um, just root work to clear all of the, you know, there's a lot of shame in chronic illness too. There's a lot of, um, in addition to grief and loss, there is a lot of, um, the word that's coming up is despair. And so to really acknowledge how much time was spent in that state and to live with that and begin to um, ask what are the lessons from this? What, what is the knowing that is now in my cells? How am I different? Mm-hmm. How have I changed? then, then it will be time for a ceremony. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I think what I've appreciated is you. Yeah. And throughout the process and when you've been able to, you shared exactly where you've been at and it's been so, it's been like a magnet for me. Mm. I don't hear from a lot of people sharing this process. I, I'm making an assumption that many go dark in that despair and that grief and that shame. And perhaps in ways you went dark, right? Mm-hmm. But I just, I felt like such a sacred witness. I still feel, you know, I'm one of your patrons and I just feel like I'm a part of this circle <laughs> like around mm-hmm. you. Like, okay, what's mm-hmm. next? Okay. <laughs> Where are we at? Okay. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I really thank you because I'm sure that took energy when you had very little. I really thank you for what you're sharing and how you're sharing it. Um, I think about how many people are suffering with chronic illness and that shame or feeling like no doctor will believe them or whatever it is and, and how important it is to share that process. So it is. Well, I am so grateful to you and to, Oh my gosh, the community that I've encountered through Patreon and through 
Instagram in those two years, that was my sustenance because one of the things that happens when you're so ill is all non-reciprocal relationships fall away. Like it becomes very That sounds clear. great. It is, but (laughs) you realize how many of those there are. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I have three people showing up for me in my life. That's, you know, and and they're all taxed too. And you realize that um, things can get very simple, but also very small. And so it was such a revelation to come into these online communities and find so much support, so much encouragement, and so many people who are out there isolated and ill and who are looking for connection. And this is the place where they can find it. Because, you know, in, in their lived environments, people are not showing up. And that was my, that was definitely my experience was I had a few people that were consistent and then a lot of people that just, they, I don't know if they couldn't or they were afraid. I don't know. I, that's part of what I'm processing right now. Um, I don't understand because now that I'm well, some of those same people are coming back in Mm. and I, uh, and I realized that, I mean, that's the non-reciprocal part of it. If you in relationship, there's always an ebb of flow of energy, right? And, and sometimes you can give and sometimes you can't. And if you are an ally of someone who is severely ill, you know that you're going to be giving more than they can. That's just part of it. And then, you know, I'm so grateful to my allies, both online and live, who, who were able to offer so much to me when I couldn't give very much at all. And then it's interesting to see who comes back in when they think that you might have something for them. Um, Hmm. So it's been fascinating. And I don't blame anyone for it because we are, we are, I mean, you're going into death dual training, so you know this very well. We are enculturated against death. All death, all extreme change, all all is negative. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to touch it. And there are very few things that remind us more of death besides age yeah, than illness. Oh, I feel that so much. Mm-hmm. I recently went through um, a second miscarriage in mm. November. Mm. And um, thank you. Yeah, it's really brought me closer to death, let me tell you. Yes. Literally oh. processing death in my body. Yes. Um, you know, several times now. And I have noticed in my own way, that same, that same um, pull, uh, pulling away, I mean, of certain people. Mm-hmm. And what that brings up in me, um, I have like a pretty intense fear of abandonment. Mm. feels very ancestral in my mother line. Mm. And noticing um, I, I interviewed a friend who also has been going through, um, pregnancy loss. And we talked about how we noticed we would do the same thing with people who were experiencing grief and despair. We would do the, the story of, we don't know what to do yes. or, um, they need space. Oh yeah. Right. They need space. <laughs> 
And, but then also at the same time being like, I didn't need space. Right. <laughs> I needed support. And I just need someone to ask me, not ask me what I needed, but to be like, can I offer this? And then me be able to say yes or no. And then watching myself repeat this pattern of like not being able to show up. And so really appreciating the complexity, you know, I try not to make it binary about like, what, like reciprocal relationship and noticing that this, this system is in us. Mm-hmm. And that these are the opportunities to heal it. These are opportunities to unlearn it. And so I really thank you for bringing voice to it. Um, and I'm learning to bring voice to it too. Be like, hey, friend, I didn't show up for you in that time the way I wish I had. Mm-hmm. And I want to shift that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to not go into like shame and to also see where I want to shift some of my relationships that aren't reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Death is a like a death and grief give you that gift. I guess yes. is what I'm trying to say. Yes, absolutely. I want to, in the same way that you pause to acknowledge my child's death in my abortion, which I do see it as that. I want to acknowledge your the death of your unborn child in your miscarriage because that loss is so powerful and is another one that we don't, we don't get to grieve. We don't get to grieve loss in the body. And when we really pull ourselves into human awareness, every single human ever living on this planet was born from the womb of a mother. And when we pull ourselves into the power of the womb to, you know, to nurture life or to reject life or the need to, be in that place of empowered awareness around the choices that we make, I think that it's really important to allow for this holding. Mm -hmm. You know, that I'm, I had a miscarriage before the, um, before I became pregnant with my son. And I think, I think about that all the time that, you know, I think about the, the child who wasn't in this. I actually ended up staying with the partner who, um, I had the abortion of our child together. And, um, you know, that's another place where there's, there's so much complexity and there can be so much beauty in being able to show up and honor and grieve and just be present with each other. So, so yeah, you're welcome. Hmm. I had all these swirling thoughts and then I felt the space you created and I just let it wash (laughs) over me. It was really, it was medicine. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. It's so, it's really beautiful to be witnessed in these like tender moments of grief and sharing. There can be such buildup of like, Ooh, should I share? It's so vulnerable. And then to be witnessed by you in that just feels really good. So I thank you so much. Good. You're welcome. Yeah. You mentioned that there are three phases mm-hmm. of a rite of passage mm-hmm. or a, could you, I just feel like people are going to be like, so what are they? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could share that. Yes. Um, so a, a caveat in the beginning, these phases can happen simultaneously. Oh, Yes. They can overlap. They spiral back on each other. So 
You can be in so many of these phases all at once, especially if you're in a major transformation. And that's one of the things as, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit early on about being nonlinear in our conversation. And I know that you really hold space wonderfully for that. And I just always like to make sure that it's not, it's not a linear progression at all. Um, and that's one of the things when we like start to process trauma, we realize, oh, hey, this is because I'm actually living in this space for a moment when I get triggered. And so I have to bring myself into the present. And that's one of the ways we move through the rite of passage um, over time. So the three phases are, the first one is separation from the known, which mm-hmm. is feels pretty self-explanatory, but it can be very slow where suddenly you turn around and you're like, oh crap, <laughs> everything's changed. You know, it's like, um, and an example I can give is looking across the dining room table at your partner and being like, oh, this relationship is over. Mm. Right. And it, it was a slow progression. It happened over years, but it was, you're suddenly in this new space. Um, it can also be a lightning bolt. It can be, you know, sudden death or a diagnosis or, um, you know, a, any sort of loss um, can immediately thrust us into that place where we're separating from the known. And I should say, too, rites of passage are different from other kinds of transitions in that there's a distinctive before and after. Like, you can't go back. If you've been pregnant, you will never have been unpregnant. Like there's no way to, to go backward. If you've been married, you can not ever go back to before you were married. That's why those two things specifically are rites of passage. Um, it becomes tricky because we don't celebrate a lot of rites of passage in this culture. So we, um, we, tend, not, we tend to think of only maybe the big ones like death and maybe marriage and the birth of a child. Right. There are many, many, many other rights. And so acknowledging that you're separating from the known, that your life is changing, can be really tricky if you don't understand that, you know, what kinds of transformation you're going through. But anything where there's a distinctive before and after, you're in a rite of passage process. The second phase is the actual transition or initiation phase. And I like to use the caterpillar butterfly metaphor for this because that's when you're in the chrysalis and you dissolve completely. Like the caterpillar turns to liquid before it becomes a butterfly. It has to restructure itself. And that can sometimes take a long time, which is why we see people in transition getting really impatient. I'm one of them so impatient with the process. We just want it to be done. We want it to be over. We want to be on the other side of it. But this important, like fundamental work is happening. And that's where you don't know anything at all. Like you've separated from the known and nothing is clear. And, you Mm. know, if you're like an intuitive person or you're, you know, trying to like get tarot readings or rune readings, like it's all over the place. And it's probably going to be just about like really fundamental basic stuff because you don't know the outcome is uncertain Mm. in that time. The third phase is the return phase where you've restructured, you emerge, and now you have to come back to your community with what you have learned. And 
There's a wonderful myth in the Northern European myths about the goddess Golvig, and I know that you've heard me talk about her before. Um, she was burned three times and lived. And when she when she came out of the fire the third time, she was transformed into the goddess Heath. And Heath, um, H-E-I-D, is actually the root word of um, heathen. And it means bright, shining. Golvig means gold drink, which is kind of this idea that um, spiritual wisdom lives outside of us. But when she goes through the fire three times, she becomes luminous. She embodies that gold. And she goes on to teach magic to um, sick women. Actually, the word is ilrar in the, um, in the poetic Eda, which means ill, means sick. It's often translated as wicked, but it, it means sick. So, um, so that return, getting a new name, you have a new status, you go forward and, you know, if you integrate your right through ceremony, then you can be empowered by it rather than, you know, beaten down. But of course, so many rights go unacknowledged and that can leave like actual holes in the spiritual fabric of our being where our communities don't know what to do with us. Like with your miscarriage, it's a rite of passage. Your community, if you come to your community after completing that rite, whenever it is, it could be immediately, it could be years from now, then they honor you, they celebrate with you, they weep with you, they grieve with you, and they ask you, what are you bringing to us from your journey to the other world? Because every rite of passage is a descent into the realm of death. You, um, storyteller Martin Shaw says, something has to die in order for it to be a rite of passage. Something goes. Sometimes it's your status as a, you know, like a married person or um, the job that you loved, or sometimes it's your health, or sometimes it's everything in your life. But something will be let go of. Something dies. And in a culture that acknowledges rites of passage, that would be a community event to grieve and celebrate together in ceremony and to honor your new status and your new name. So. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> My, I don't know if you can feel me through this technology, <laughs> but like my whole system is like tingling. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for that. That oh, feels very, very powerful to me at least. Um, wow. Something has to die. Mm -hmm. Of course. Of course to be in embodied ancestry, to be in like deep awareness of all that is alive and dead is to be, uh, is to be deeply um, in relationship with death. Mm -hmm. Wow. And all of the various forms of death. Mm -hmm. All of the deaths that happen, all of these initiatory processes in the ancient stories, these are all preparing us for our own death so that we don't meet it unprepared. We don't meet it with 
fear and anxiety and, you know, regret, we can meet it with honor because we'll already have known how to let things die and how they are always reborn, that you live on, that you have legacy, that it is a cyclic process, that it is not, not, it doesn't end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like this is very much preparing me for my weekend of <laughs> training. <laughs> this is like very personal. Thank you for listening. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So I am just trying to, working on not using the word just, I am trying <laughs> to, in all ways, marriage the old ways in the new days, mm-hmm. um, to quote my friend and teacher, Mila Prince. So um, I'm thinking about this need, this very visceral need we have for the community witnessing and like that exchange and that offering that you're talking about in the return phase and how we can do that. And you said there will be a ceremony and I don't know if you know what that'll look like. I'm curious if you've had any visions or thoughts or feelings around what that would look like for you as you near completion of this rite of passage you've been in. Well, I am, (laughs) I'm teaching a class called the art of self-initiation right now. And the whole reason that I'm teaching that class is so I can figure out what my ceremony will be to help me integrate this process. That's why I, that's the only reason I ever teach anything, by the way, is not because I'm an expert in it, but so I can learn it in community because we do crave it so much. We need it. We need each other. And so I don't know. I know um, the ingredients, the fundamentals of a, of a ceremony. I know what it, what it takes to have a, a ceremony be effective. Um, I did a celebrant training years ago. I thought that that was going to be like my job, that I was just going to do ceremonies for a living. But I quickly realized that that was not an integrity for me. But I love, I love to help people create their own ceremonies, empower people to create their own ceremonial processes, help people understand why ceremonies work and why they don't. So, so I don't know. And it may take, you know, um, when I went to the doctor, so backing up many years ago, I had a wonderful midwife for my daughter. Um, she was born in the water and, the midwife said, you, you know, you had really 10 months of gestation here. It's going to take 10 months for you to come back into your wholeness. So if I've been ill for nine years, it may take me nine years to come truly into what this has meant for me. And I can do sustenance ceremonies along the way. I mean, ceremony is so important. I do ritual every day. I love every time I facilitate, whether it's secular or spiritual, I always incorporate ritual because it's just so powerful at connecting people with each other and with the earth, which is my whole mission in life. Um, but, But I don't know. I'll know when it's time. I'll know when it's time to have that ceremony. I'll know what it's like. And, um, but I'm definitely not there yet. It's still too new and raw. And, and I'm just beginning to 
have the space to see where I came from in the last almost decade of my life. Mm. You said that in this process, this nine-year process, you really got to, I don't know what your words were, but what I heard was um, you really got to know your ancestors Mm -hmm. and commune with them. Could you share more about that? Yes. So that journey started with the runes. Um, So what are runes? So runes, (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I have some on my body. Oh, good. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I pulled some for us today too. Um, So runes are beings. They're ancient beings. And um, the word rune means whispered secret. Nobody really knows where they came from, but there's the possibility that they um, originated in the old European sacred script, which for those who don't know, old Europe um, was a very, it was kind of a a golden age of partnership societies. Um, There's no evidence of weaponry in in old European civilization. Um, And we're talking like uh, Neolithic um, the temples were the centers of the communities. And this is all based on the work of Maria Gambutas, who was um, an archaeologist. Um, I had the great privilege of taking an archaeomythology class in my PhD program. I know, it was <laughs> so cool. Um, so there was a, an ancient sacred script. And in fact, when you look at the archaeological evidence of um, like uh, Scarabray, which is up in Scotland, the Ness of Brogar, like there are runes. They're not what we think of as the runic alphabet, which is kind of how it was interpreted later um, to be uh, an alphabet. But in the oldest stories, they're seen as vibrational beings, and they come from um, the well of Erd, which is um, the sacred well that the Norns guard, which is um, by the world tree. And, and who are the Norns? The Norns are the fates. You can think of them. They're sometimes referred to as the fates or the three sisters. And um, they, their names are Earth, Verdandi, and Skold, and they actually represent um, past, what was, what is, and what will become, or um, sometimes it's happened, happening, and what will happen. Um, they're seen as spinners and weavers, and they are not just the, the Norns are specific to Northern Europe, but they're spinning and weaving Um, triple goddess guardians of fate all over ancient European civilization. So um, the story of how we came to um, receive the runes is the god Odin actually sacrificed himself. He hung from the world tree for nine days and nine nights and gave up his eye and was pierced by spears and screaming, reached down into the well, which is, of course, the feminine source wisdom, and took up the runes in his hand. And that kind of, um, that's a very violent story. And so in my Gnosis work, um, I had come to see the runes as actually pieces of the web of weird, which is 
in again in the the northern European spirituality, there's a web of um, energy that is everything, and so you can visualize it as as if we just took the energetic form of every life on Earth and saw it vibrationally rather than seeing it as, as its physical self, and weird is rooted in some scientific methodology too because of course everything actually is energy and energy can be transformed so weird spelled w-y-r-d w-y-r-d also the root of the word w-e-i-r-d so if anyone calls you weird it's a compliment (laughs) so the the runes though came into my life um, in 2013 and, uh, and I was forever changed just by, I met, um, Ingrid Kincaid, who is, uh, a teacher and took some classes with her in the runes. And what really came out of that though, was starting to connect with my ancestors with, um, and it was, I began dreaming about them. The second that I opened the door to connect with them, I was just sharing this in class the other night. I had a dream where they were like peering down at me, looking at me going, who is this girl? You know, who's, who's wanting this information from us? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that just has opened so, so many doors. And most of my ancestor work has been in the, the Nordic Scandinavian, Northern European, Celtic realm. But recently, um, in fact, over this past year, my Eastern European ancestors have been knocking at my door and saying, you know, hey, what about us too? And there's an interesting connection there to my illness. Um, the I have a gene that um, makes it so I can't process biotoxins, which is why the mold situation in our home was so devastating for me. And that gene through random internet searches and lots of scientific papers, I found that that gene is specific to, um, Eastern European ancestry. So part of me felt like this, one of the lessons here could be that they wanted some of my time and attention. And it's been really rich to delve into, um, all of the cultural, um, spiritual and um, magical applications of of that world so Mm. that's so interesting Mm -hmm. that your illness (laughs) brought them closer Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah I kind of felt that way about miscarrying Mm -hmm. I felt like all of a sudden I could feel more of what my ancestors experienced in like the harrowing yet um, biologically imperative act that is creating the next, like creating the lineage. Yes. Yes. The endurance of, of loss is a part of that process. And I felt them physically near. Yes. Like, coaching me through it Mm. oh I love that yeah oh I love that yes so I have full goosebumps which my good friend April calls truth bumps as you're (laughs) talking um and I'm thinking about the deer which are in the 
um, Northern European tradition, the ancestral grandmothers, we all have them. And they are, they are the spirits of our female ancestors who've come before, and they have a vested interest in making sure that things go well with the lineage. So, (laughs) so yes, they would stand with you. They um, also would be invoked at the birth of a child. Um, They were very revered. They had their own feast day um, that was over a series of days, either in November or February, depending on the source. Um, But powerful that you would feel them there with you because, of course, they are with you. Mm-hmm. They're inside of you. They live in ourselves, our ancestors. We're never, ever alone. Mm. Right. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your name. <laughs> Because I don't know when it was when you helped in your expression of your story, you helped me realize the sense of loss I feel as a woman in this society in the way we do surnames mm-hmm. and, um, and how we take those of us who partner with men and and do that system of marrying the man and then taking his last name, which is what many of my ancestors did, played, played along. There is a sense of a loss. Who were those women? Mm-hmm. And in my, I am you know, privileged enough to have a lot of genealogical data to sift, to shift through, to sift through in, in my like, ever expanding journey of knowing who and what I came from. And I just keep seeing the men's names. Mm-hmm. And if the women are named, I'm lucky to get a first name, but oftentimes I get Mrs. Man name. Mm-hmm. And I sort of like went along with it. And then some, something you shared in, in the power of naming, I think that was one of your modules or somewhere. I, I had this deep awareness and sadness of the loss of the women's stories mm-hmm. through the loss of their names. And then I realized you renamed yourself. And I thought, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could share whatever feels true for you on that, it just feels so powerful. Sure. Oh, I love. So um, one of the things that, has always stayed with me and I can't remember where I heard it, but it's naming is the first magic. Mm. So when we put a name to something, it takes form, which, you know, we live in a culture where our parents name us, but in a lot of cultures, you go through a rite of passage ceremony in adolescence and you take your own name or the elders name you. Right. Wow. Yeah. So I began life as Lara Irene Vestnes. Um, my family name, my surname is my father's name, but it is also, oddly enough, not our family name because when my um, 
my family followed the Scandinavian um, naming tradition. And so my ancestor who came over from Norway was Peter Larsson, Larsson, Peter, and his son was Peter Peter's son. Ah. But somewhere along the way, they took the place name, which was Vestness, not even Vestnes, but Vestness, and applied it probably to distinguish from Where the other Petersons or, you know, I don't know why that happened. But um, so that's my family name on my, my dad's side. Um, and my mother's maiden name is Rosenlund, which is also Norwegian and set, it means grove of roses. So, right. um, and Vesnes means West Bay. So they're both place oriented, which I find really fascinating. And that was a, a different kind of ancient tradition where we used to take the names of the places where we lived. You can see that in the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary Magdalene, like these are place names. Um, the system of patrilineal naming is really fascinating because we don't question it at all. Right. In fact, we desire it, right? When you are um, following. Or something. Yes, that's right. When you're falling into that particular paradigm, it can be, um, yes, romantic to, to imagine. And that's part of this, you know, patriarchy is still selling itself constantly. And there is nothing more patriarchal if naming is the first magic, then giving everyone the father's name. So, so after I um, was Lara Vesnes, I married and I was Lara Flores for a while, um, for about 10 years. That's my children's father's name. And then when I got divorced, I did not want to go backwards. I did not want to go back to my father's name. And I definitely did not want my former husband's name. <laughs> and so I decided I was working a lot. This was like very much my entry into um, full expressive spirituality, which I had always, I mean, that's another conversation is um, uh, spiritual superiority in this culture and um, spiritual oppression because I identified as pagan and a witch for from a very young age, but I had no way of talking about it or being present with it through until I was divorced and in my 30s. And so I was working a lot with goddesses and I loved the goddess Vesta. Mm. I loved that she is whole unto herself. I loved the tradition of the priestess in the temple. And, um, I decided that I wanted to take her name as an honoring of my, the name of origin and, um, the place where my family was from, but also to illustrate that I was whole in and of myself. So I did, and I legally changed my name and I went to the courthouse dressed all in roses and had roses in my hair <laughs> And I, I was by myself. It felt like a wedding. And I walked up the aisle. And, you know, most of the people that are in there changing their name are people who it's after divorce or they're changing the name of their children because of, you know, some legal issues. So it was pretty dour in there. But I had a, a really wonderful judge and she, she blessed me. 
And I was able to like do a twirl in the middle of the aisle and I danced out of the courthouse and I was no longer any man's anything. I was myself. So it was really a huge moment for me. And by the way, it changed everything. Taking my own name totally changed my life. And now I I did remarry. I had a partner and I still have my own name. And it will be my name forever. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about like shifting the story for your lineage. Mm-hmm. I've, the ripple effects like up and down. Yes. And just having that awareness. So my children both have their father's name legally. He was very insistent upon it because patriarchy. <laughs> Um, my, the men in my family were very upset when I changed my name. In fact, my uncle refuses to use, this has been over a decade now that I've had my own name. He refuses to use my name. He writes me letters with my maiden name. Wow. They were really upset. They took it personally. And that just, to me, illustrates how proprietary men tend to feel about the women in their lives. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Really, really big. Yeah. But, and it is a personal choice and it's not for everyone. And I understand that it's difficult to challenge these structures because look, my kids both have their dad's name, you know, but giving them an option, knowing you have the option, you can be whatever you want. You can take whatever name you want. And it doesn't mean that you're not part of that family. It doesn't mean that you're not married. It doesn't mean anything other than you're whole into yourself. I thought about starting a Vesta society where women could just all take the name Vesta. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please do that. (laughs) You can. Everybody can. Yes. And, And then, you know, just to illustrate, like, we are, we're whole into ourselves. Yeah. We're changing the story. And we are alive in a time when for many of us and not all of us, it's the safest it's ever been to make Mm -hmm. these, you know, make these choices. I think sometimes when I could use a shot of of courage, you know, in Mm -hmm. my veins, I think about how I have more of an ability to to claim these things, to do these things than even my grandmother could. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and that helps me take that next step. Mm-hmm. This idea of we can. Yes. And maybe they couldn't, but we can. And they lived so that we could be alive. Yes. Yes. And then what, you know, one of the things that I think has been a struggle for so many of us, I know it was for me, is um, having role models of of women who were empowered to live their own lives, to be free and be in relationship, to be mothers and do other things too, to be, you know, expressive in the world and to have privacy in in the home. Like I I didn't see that. That wasn't an example for me. Um, And I have a good relationship with my mom. I'm very close with her, but my family is very patriarchal. And so to step outside of that and be 
let's be models for the next generation. Even what if it's, you know, children of, of your heart or children of your blood, it doesn't matter, but let's, let's think about what we can do, what choices we can make so that they feel empowered to take their own, to take their own agency into whatever it is they desire. Yeah. Becoming the elders. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is super exciting. I know. Oh, <laughs> I know. wow. It's very motivating. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, I have one final question and then we'll close, which is, um, may I speak to the word you use to complete ritual? Sure. Of course. So you use the word alu. Mm-hmm. And I, in my um, spiritual and conscious spaces here in Northern California, find that many rituals or, or gatherings are ended with the word aho, mm-hmm. which is um, the masculine version of aha. I believe it's Lakota mm-hmm. in origin. And it's something I've never really been able to say. Mm-hmm. It hasn't felt resonant. It frankly hasn't felt an integrity. And I often say, and so it is. Mm-hmm. And then I started being in your circles and, and watching you and your um, embodiment of your Northern European ancestry. And, and you say, in this and every effort, may the balance be regained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it just, my whole body <laughs> felt, well, that feels good. <laughs> so could you share about that? Sure. Yes. I actually get a lot of questions about this for the same reason. Yeah. I, when I first learned about ritual before I had any classes or anything, just doing, I had the same experience with you with a hurl. And I was like, what does that even, what does that mean? And where does it come from? Which especially right now in spiritual circles, it is so important to ask those questions. Yep. Like do not just follow the leader. You have to do your own research because otherwise you're probably appropriating. And that is a fact. And that's something that I'm constantly striving. And again, it's just about being an integrity for, for whoever you are knowing hey, that does not resonate with me and there's probably a reason for it and let's find out what we're actually saying. It's kind of like, you know, getting a, getting a, I always laugh about like getting a tattoo and not knowing what it means. You know, if you're speaking words in ritual and you don't know what they mean, um, that's dangerous actually. It is not a good idea from a spiritual perspective. So I started looking at And so much of my work with the Northern European traditions is Gnosis-based because we don't have a lot of good written source material. So what does Gnosis mean? Gnosis means that you can receive direct information from divinity. Mm. Yes. Yes. Just like our ancestors did. Mm -hmm. Most of the traditions that we talk about now, even though they've been inscribed in many ways were oral. And so there is so much due to, you know, religious supremacy and oppression, there's so much that is fragmented and gone. And so we take these fragments and we work to weave a whole, which is really important um, because we're reweaving ancestral fabric. And 
not reweaving it so that we can sell it, not reweaving it so that we can, you know, put it in the marketplace, reweaving it so that we can be whole. And what I found in my research is that um, there's a runic formula um, that is inscribed on artifacts that is alu. It's ansus, lagus, urus. So ansus is like the breath of God, the voice of God. Lagus is flow, water, the feminine. Urus is strength, power, stamina. I mean, that's very basic. but like the I, holy trinity. It <laughs> is. Yeah. yeah. So it's bringing these things into form. And, and it felt to me like a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of authors... Um, you know, around the turn of the century, tried to say that it meant ale, <laughs> ale, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of typical, like, um, male anthropological, you know, evidence. Revisionist. Based, yes, revisionist history. But to me, it felt like a blessing. And so I've chosen to use it as my blessing um, to close ritual. And it feels, it's, feels really good. It feels like just that signature in the same way that amen is a signature or blessed be is a signature or, um, you know, there's so many other ones. I really love being in ritual with people from other cultures and hearing what they use to bless. And then knowing like, this is what my ancestors in my body in resonance with my cells say, alu. Mm. What I love about that story is um, it gives us um, permission and encouragement and invitation to step into a more deeper embodiment of, of this gnosis of it's like a claiming mm-hmm. of fully being in this spiritual connected way that we're all craving so much. Uh, and I think there's just a lot of like nervousness and newness. And so we blindly follow mm-hmm. and that's where appropriation can happen. And that's where we can feel like frauds, frankly, mm-hmm. you know? And so then it's like, well, I'm not really doing the thing and I don't know what I'm doing. Nah, 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 nah. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, you're not only getting half the medicine. And so it's really beautiful for even in this, for you to say, like, it's cool to hear what other people say at the end of the closing, you know, prayer, you know, that some, someone's saying amen and someone's saying aho and someone's saying alu and someone's saying blessed be and whatever it is, or someone's saying, thank you. Mm-hmm. And that it's all sacred. Mm-hmm. I just, I've been in so many gatherings and circles where everyone nervously says, oh, oh, oh you know, cause mm-hmm. it's just you're not fully embodying it. And that's okay. We're all, we're all learning, but it's just, it's really, it's really powerful for you to share that. We are all learning. And the, you know, the Gnosis work is what really cracked open my spirituality. And I, I see the distance from Gnosis as being very much about um, ancestral trauma you know, I, I think that my, my, the, the people in my lineage who were magical people, I mean, like magical people everywhere, you don't get to be me without having magical people in your lineage, like <laughs> this much I know. So whoever was in there, um, you know, they, they had to hide 
they had to hide their magic. And so there is a level of uncertainty, especially when the historical religions, which historical just means written. So the historical religions all have documentation. They all have books. Here you go. Here's a book. And so we magical people expect that there's going to be a book that will teach us how to connect with our ancestors, how to use our magical power, when really it's about inquiry and, and time, you know, showing up, relationship, being present with what's coming through you, listening, that's it. And, and it's accessible to everyone. It's not like I'm a special person or you're a special person. We're all special people. We all have these billions of ancestors living inside of us all the information that you would ever need to develop a spiritual practice to connect with the earth is inside of you right now. That's it. <laughs> it's really that easy. It is. <laughs> I know. You know, mm. yeah, you don't need to read. Oh, so I was asked the other day for a reading list for women of European descent. <laughs> please give me the pathway you know I laugh because I am that woman still in many oh, ways. I know me too and I was like okay here's some books but really guys just it's gonna take your whole lifetime yes you know like it takes time and showing up and fumbling and this person has this perspective you know and and a lot of, you know, a lot of this wasn't written or it was burned in the crusades mm -hmm. and, and, and what do you hear? Yes. What do you hear when you touch a tree? What do you dream about? Yes. Like what comes to you when you're in circle with other women? Like that's really important. Maybe more important than that book about pagan goddesses. Yes. Yeah. Books are great for information. Like I really appreciate the work of some of the authors that I've been reading um uh max dashu i was about to say max dashu yeah, um, so powerful maria kvilhaug who did the um seed of yggdrasil which i'm still like only halfway through because it's so dense but it's so good but it's so academic and it's got to work in the body so you you take the little bits that you read and they can affirm you but everything is in your body it's all in your body and it's knowing, knowing what to follow and just listening. Um, that's been the, that's been the gift is just to listen because it's all right there. And it doesn't have to be, if it's personal, if it's for you, there's no way to get it wrong. It's it, the way to get it wrong is to then think that it's got to be, you know, packaged again for, for resale to a public, which has been a quandary for those of us who are teaching this work. We live in capitalism. We want to offer it. You know, it, it's, it's very difficult, but it is another thing. You know, it's one thing to, to offer in ways that, um, that give everyone an opportunity for access. And it's another thing to offer in ways that are so exclusive and limited, which is what a lot of the like priestess programs or, you know, things that are like, so like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that I always look at those. I'm that person who looks at them and goes, wow, that would be really cool. And, yeah, and then I would it. know, and then I would yeah. know all the things Yes, and I would get an A plus. Yes, <laughs> that's right. 
<laughs> or or some sort of yes, an A plus, an advanced degree, a certification, something. You get something, right? And then you get to call yourself something. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's personal, exploration is totally fine. And finding what's resonant for you is what it's all about because they live inside you. I just found out. So my DNA test came back and I'm like 100% European. My kids are um, Hispanic. Their dad's Hispanic, but I'm like 100% European. But my grandfather's DNA test came back and he's he's got Indian in him from India. He's He has an ancestor from India in this like Norwegian. He's like 88 years old. He's always really identified as being just Norwegian. And here he is. <laughs> so wow. we, we don't know what lives inside of us. And there's a reason for the resonances that we feel. And the more that you can attune to what's true for you, the more that your ancestors can come through in their authenticity, because whoever knows what opens or closes a door, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. Mm -hmm. Though I feel very resistant to completing. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Um, oh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories and all of it. I'm, I'm just so, I want to just share in front of the world how grateful I am for you and your work and really want to encourage people to support you on Patreon. Uh, you give a lot to your patron community. Um, currently, there's a course available for them. And I'd love for you to share however people can interact with you, whether it's paid or not. I mean, simply your Instagram is powerful. But yeah, where do you want to direct people to, to continue? Sure. Oh, gosh. Well, Patreon is where I'm hanging out. And I know there's a paywall, but it's a dollar. So, you know, a dollar a month is the paywall. And that's just because I know that people see my work when I put it on there. And Instagram was feeling really discouraging for a while. So I'm also in that space of trying to figure out who I am. And it's hard to do that on social media. It's much easier to do that in a circle that I feel safe in, where I feel safe with my patrons. But if you have any questions, you want to interact with me, you can always email me. It's just laravesta at gmail. I have a website and I have a school called the Wild Soul School. There's courses in there um, by donation. If you need a scholarship for anything or you can't access a course, like I have a live course right now, um, going there. All the classes are nonlinear, so you can join them at any time. Again, you can just email me and I let everybody in. So, um, and that's because I know from being so sick and not having access and having so many financial limitations, it's really important to me that there's access. And I'm always striving for that balance of like access and protection because that's the world that we live in when we're online. But just please come and hang out and be a part of any of the communities because some incredible things are being woven. Like in Patreon, we have a um, healing the witch wound circle that meets once a month. And that's been really wonderful. And the self-initiation class has been so far just a delight. And yeah, that's the, that's the one I've been monitoring. Yes. <laughs> that's not the word, but <laughs> no, that's good. 
monitoring is good. And I always say too that the work is peripheral. So even if you can't engage with it directly because you're too whatever in this moment, that it works on an energetic level. So just tapping in, seeing it in your periphery can be really powerful as well. We don't have to like do all of the homework all of the time to get the impact of practicing in community. Ooh, thank you for that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, there's, we mentioned a lot. So if you go to belongingpodcast.com, I will have links to the things and the stuff. And I'll just ask you now, do I have permission to show uh, your drawing of the Norns? Oh yes. Because yes, that's very powerful. Yeah. You, she, you, she, <laughs> <laughs> you do some like handwritten and drawings that I find to be very powerful in the sharing of your work. So I would love people to see that as well. Oh, please do. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for being here and for sharing. And um, I'm just so pleased to, you know, boost your signal as much as I can because you've just impacted me so much. So I'm very grateful for your time. Oh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity and for all that you are weaving and creating. And thank you so much for making this space so we can talk about things like belonging and connection and ancestors <laughs> it's really so yummy. powerful mm-hmm. and healing yeah. so thank you mm. you're so welcome should we end with the blessing yes please okay by this and every effort may the balance be regained Alu. Alu. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I know your time is sacred, and I hope this episode infused some inspiration and meaning into your day. For show notes, links, and references from this episode, you can go to belongingpodcast.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to Belonging on Apple Podcasts, and if you have a moment, leave a review. This helps my little podcast reach more listeners, and I would be ever so grateful.